In a communion Sunday like this, we want everything especially to bring us to the Lord's table, then flow out of the Lord's table. And let me attempt to do that this morning. In light of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ that we have just celebrated, today we begin a four-week series on how Jesus responded to four different people in the Gospel of John. So we're looking at four stories. A skeptic, that's this morning. A sojourner, next Sunday. Then a sinner, and finally a sufferer. All in the Gospel of John. As a matter of fact, there are two skeptics that we encounter in the Gospel of John, both who later become uh, disciples. Doubting Thomas at the end of the Gospel of John. And then Nathaniel called Bartholomew in the other three Gospels who we are introduced to at the beginning of the Gospel of John. We're less familiar with the story of Nathaniel, so we want to look at uh, Nathaniel today and look at this very fascinating story. So what I want to do is basically tell a story. And I'm going to, with the exception of a couple verses, go verse by verse through this fascinating story. Account. So open your Bibles to John chapter 1, and would you stand with me as we begin reading in verse 43. The next day Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, who were brothers, was from the town of Bethsaida. That's on the north east corner of the Sea of Galilee. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth. Can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly, or truly, truly, I tell you, you will see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You may be seated. Now this Nathaniel we meet has a problem with Jesus. Left alone, it's an insurmountable problem. But before we look at the problem, I want you to see something very positive uh, uh, about Nathaniel. Look at verse 45. And notice what Philip emphasizes in verse 45 with Nathaniel. Uh, Nathaniel, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about. Now, Moses and the prophets is a way to express the entirety of the Old Testament. We found the one that the entirety of the Old Testament talks about, points to. 
is written about. In other words, Philip is telling us, based on his appeal to Nathaniel, that Nathaniel was a student of the Old Testament. That Nathaniel had a very high regard for the Old Testament. That the Old Testament mattered to Nathaniel. But look more closely at verse 45 for just a minute. Because what Philip is showing us is the key to understanding the Old Testament. And I would, under, I would add, if this is the key to understanding the Old Testament, this is the key to understanding your life. Because Philip tells us the Old Testament isn't merely instructions or rules sprinkled with random stories. Rather, the Old Testament is one story uh, about one hero, Jesus Christ, then sprinkled with instructions. Philip is telling us in verse 45, don't miss this, that everything, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. And if that is true about the Bible, it's true about life. You see, how you interpret the Bible determines how you interpret life. So is the Bible merely instructions? Then your life will be about moralism. Or is the Bible, including the Old Testament, uh, about Jesus? Then our lives will be about Jesus. And so the first thing Philip says about Jesus to Nathaniel, he's the one that the Old Testament is all about. Is your life all about Jesus? So Nathaniel was a God-fearer. Nathaniel was a man who trusted the Old Testament. That's the point of Philip's appeal. But Nathaniel had a problem. And here we move to the negative side. Nathaniel was skeptical. Skeptical about Jesus. He famously says in the next verse, verse 46, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Now, I, I don't, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Nathaniel was an arrogant snob. He was biased, deeply prejudiced. He was a bigot, now follow this, relative to different cities populated by fellow Jews. Can you imagine how he felt about non-Jews? Philip is saying to Nathaniel, Jesus has the answers to the ultimate questions in life. But Nathaniel responds, he can't. There's no way. Uh, he's from Nazareth. How can I believe in someone who comes from such a corrupt, immoral city. And by the way, we know this, this is a matter of history because Nazareth had the unfortunate privilege, if you will, of being located on the road or the highway that led to and from Rome. So Nazareth obviously picked up all that Rome brought. 
And hence its history was difficult, tragic, immoral. So on the one hand, Nathaniel wants answers, but on the other hand, he can't get past his bias, his prejudice. And do you see, we're no different. We're so very skeptical about things, about issues. Uh, we're biased against uh, people, things, issues, people uh, that are different than us. Uh, oh, they're just narrow-minded Republicans. She's a loosey-goosey liberal Democrat. And we look down our nose. Oh, I need somebody that's educated or we don't necessarily say it but we think it well he's just a minority and, and, and what we think in the dark shadows in our mind is they have nothing to teach us we have nothing to learn and so we just uh, pass by and you know what we do we roll our eyes now, I say all this because today we live in a world full of skeptical people who view Christianity the same way Nathaniel viewed Nazareth. The world rolls its eyes at Christianity. The Bible infallible, sin being the fundamental human problem, uh, Jesus Christ alone being the only way, these five pillars, uh, that's impossible. It's all pre-scientific. Now, never mind, and I'm saying this parenthetically, that science can never answer the ultimate questions in life. We just think today, in our scientifically, technologically oriented culture, uh, that they can, and, but they can't. And, and so the point I want you to see we live in a world today where your Christianity, your belief in Jesus is Nazareth. We live in a world full of religious skepticism and it bleeds into our lives as followers of Christ. But Tim Keller tells us in one of his books uh, that if you're a skeptical like this, then you have two problems, and I want to mention both of them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the first is that your dismissiveness can be deadly. Your skepticism can be deadly. It can, it can be deadly because skepticism cuts you off from having an open mind. It cuts you off from problem solving. It cuts you off from thinking of being teachable. What can uh, this group, what can these people uh, help me understand? And, and frankly, one of the biggest problems is it can kill relationships. Uh, uh, take marriage. Uh, some marriage experts tell us that the sign a marriage is in trouble is when one spouse regularly rolls their eyes at the other. Rolling the eyes is a sign of a deeply troubled marriage. 
Why? Well, healthy marriages can overcome disappointment and disagreement and, and, and frustration. But, but when one spouse is continually rolling their eyes, what they're revealing is their contempt for the other spouse, and relationships over time simply die where there's contempt. Skepticism. Uh, because it always kills the opportunity to learn. It kills the opportunity to understand differences. It kills the opportunity to grow. And it isolates you. And here, skepticism is isolating Nathaniel uh, from the answers to the ultimate questions in life. Where did we come from? Uh, what's our problem? How do... Uh, uh, how do we make it right? Uh, the second problem you have, if, if you're skeptical like Nathaniel was skeptical, if you're skeptical, a person is skeptical about Christianity, is uh, you sever from your life the very source of many of the morals you embrace. So let me just talk about cultural, the cultural piece of this for just a moment. I mean, where do you think concepts of equal rights have come from? Freedom of speech. The dignity of all people. Loving our enemies and not killing them. A care, a concern, a, 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 a for justice, for the poor, uh, for widows and for orphans. Where does all that come from? It comes from Christianity. It was Christianity that revolutionized pagan Europe. And it's the loss of Christianity that is destroying the moral fabric of the West because we have become unhinged from our foundation. So let me tease this out a, a little more. For example, in the ancient Near East, we're going back in time, the firstborn male inherited all the family's land, all the family's wealth, all the family's possessions in order to continue the status of the family so it wasn't broken into pieces. The other siblings received practically nothing. Yet all through the Bible, God doesn't choose the oldest sibling, he chooses the younger sibling. He chooses Abel over Cain, Isaac over Ishmael. Jacob over Esau. And when we come to Joseph and, and then later to David, God chose these two uh, youngest of siblings over what? 17 or 18 older brothers? God never chooses the one from Jerusalem. He chooses the one from Nazareth. And Jesus is from Nazareth. Let me add another example. Take women in the ancient Near East. Women in the ancient Near East who had a lot of children were honored, valued, and respected. Women who were childless were shunned and shamed. Yet over and over in the Bible, God chooses to work through women who were childless. Sarah, Rebecca, 
Hannah. In the New Testament, Elizabeth. You see, in the Bible, God works through the men and women nobody wanted. The people that didn't fit in, the people that were overlooked. Uh, God doesn't work through the celebrities. And today, men and women, we've got this backwards. And we live in a celebrity culture, and we, uh, that's infected and impacted our, our, our churches. The kingdom of God is not a celebrity culture. It's a humbled, selfless, repentant culture. It's people from Nazareth, not Jerusalem, because God loves the underdogs, the normal, the ordinary, that he might be glorified by his power, not our own, his gifts, not ours. Now, I've sort of wandered a little, but here I, here's the point. If you agree with a part of Christianity, say some of the morality, but you disagree with the doctrinal part of Christianity, the wrath of God, the doctrine of heaven and hell, the death and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only way to bridge the gap, it's not going to work. Why? It just can't work. Because these are the parts of the Bible that provide the basis for the morality that you and I cling to today. And so let me just say to you, to those of you that are naturally more skeptical, don't, don't be Nathaniel when it comes to Jesus. Don't roll your eyes at, at, at Christianity. That kind of skepticism is not only toxic to marriage, it's toxic uh, to all areas of life, and it's especially toxic to getting answers to the biggest questions of life, like who is Jesus? So I want to invite you instead to take your time. I want to invite you to open your mind. I want to invite you to ask questions. And I want to invite you, appeal to you to look into Nazareth. Now that's Nathaniel. Now I want to shift and spend the balance of our time looking at how Jesus responds to Nathaniel. It's just absolutely fascinating. So we're going to march through some uh, verses here and unpack this incredible story. Actually, Jesus' response to Nathaniel is threefold. The first response is found in verse 47. When Jesus says, truly, here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, this is amazing because in light of Nathaniel's skepticism, in light of his snobbery and his uh, uh, prejudice, Jesus' response here, his first response, is remarkably gentle and loving and compassionate. Why? He doesn't blast Nathaniel. You bigot? He doesn't get in a shouting match with him. He doesn't take on uh, uh, Nathaniel's blind spots. 
Instead, he sees right through Nathaniel to the core of his being. And he says two things. First, here is a real Israelite. In other words, what he's saying to Nathaniel is, Nathaniel, uh, uh, you can be a Jew racially and not be a Jew spiritually, but you're a Jew racially and you're a Jew spiritually uh, because you have such a high regard for the Old Testament and you live from the inside out. You live in submission to the authority of God's word. Now, perhaps this is where or why Paul will say later in Romans chapter 2, Um, A person who is a Jew is one who is one inwardly. Paul and Jesus are saying the same thing about Nathaniel. But it's been said by others, by some other commentators, that actually Nathaniel was apparently a very direct guy, no-nonsense guy, a little abrasive, sometimes outspoken, that perhaps Nathaniel didn't have many friends because of how direct he was. Now, that's all conjecture. We don't know for sure. But if so, Jesus sees through that and is not just kind and forgiving, uh, but affirming. So he goes on in the second part of verse 47 and and says, uh, Nathaniel, there's no deceit in you. In other words, you're not a pretentious type of person. Uh, you're not, you're not, you don't go through life pretending. Uh, you don't harbor secrets. You don't have uh, dark closets full of stuff. You don't live one way in the public and the other way uh, uh, privately. Do you see the grace Jesus is extending Nathaniel? On the one hand, he's a God-fearer. And another, he uh, Respects the Old Testament. On the other hand, he's got this dark part of his life. And we're all like that. We're all mixed bags. I'm a mixed bag. And as a result of what Jesus says in verse 47, Nathaniel is stunned. And so we ask in verse 48 the obvious question, how do you know this? And here we come to Jesus' second response. He says, I saw you. I saw you under the fig tree. Was that yesterday? Was that a couple hours ago? What was Nathaniel doing under the fig tree? Was he praying? Was he brokenhearted? Uh, Some suggest in light of what Jesus is going to say in verse 51 that Nathaniel uh, was meditating on the Genesis account of Jacob and his dream about the ladder. And now we don't know any of that. But what we do know is that in Jesus' first response, in verse 47, he is saying, I am gentle. Jesus is saying, I, Jesus, am gentle. Here in his second response, in the next verse, Jesus is saying, I know everything about you. Everything about you. Now, let me drill down for just a second. This should both comfort you and sober you. It was Eugene Peterson who said, all the water and all the oceans can't sink a ship unless it gets inside it. 
And in the same way, all the trouble in all the world can't harm us unless it gets inside us. So the only mysterious mistake we can make when trouble hits, when illness comes, when anxiety threatens, when conflict disturbs our relational, our relationships, is to conclude that God has abandoned me, God has forgotten me, God, I guess you're not there for me, because look what's going on. That's the only serious mistake we can make. Because Jesus is telling us he knows everything about Nathaniel and he knows everything about you. And I want you to know this. This is part of his love for you. And the only way we are going to allow water into the ship of our lives is by ignoring the reality that Jesus is present and Jesus knows everything about me. Man, I want you to take comfort in that reality. Take comfort in that in the difficult hot spots of your life this week. But also, you and I should be sobered about this reality. Now, you may think no one saw what you did this week. One. No one saw what you looked at on your screens. But Jesus didn't. Jesus does. Uh, the door of great opportunity swings on the hinges of small obediences when no one is looking. The door of great opportunity swings on the hinges of the smallest obedience when you think no one is watching. Uh, one of our daughter-in-laws, when she comes to visit with her family and her two little uh, toddlers, always brings a video monitor that she plugs in after uh, she puts um, our grandkids to bed, and then she just watches us for a little bit. Now, it's all so different than um, when we raised our kids. We just put them to bed, we prayed with them, sang with them, then we closed the door, locked the door, and went to a movie. <laughs> now you've got parents watching these video monitors, right? You've seen it. But it's actually quite interesting. One time we saw uh, Lucy, a three-and-a-half-year-old, doing a handstand on her bed with her feet up against the wall, <laughs> getting ready to go to sleep, right? Yeah, I don't think so. She was at her grandparents' house. She was wound up. Jesus is telling us he's that parent. And he doesn't need a video monitor. He is watching you. He is present every second of your life. Now think about that when you're in trouble and let it comfort you. But think about that also when you're tempted. And let it sober you. Nathaniel, I know everything about you. So as a result of what Jesus says in his second response, uh, we come to verse 49. And what I want you to understand in verse 49 is that here Nathaniel converts. Here Nathaniel surrenders his life and he worships Jesus, saying, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Two different ways of saying the same thing. You are the promised Messiah. You are God in the flesh. And now Nathaniel believes it. Verse 49 is quite wonderful. It's amazing. 
It's a distillation of, of, of conversion, of salvation. But let me say something about surrender here because I don't think we have a holistic concept of surrender. And we see this here. I believe that many of us have trouble with surrender. We have uh, trouble with obedience. We have trouble with following Christ in the good times and, and, and the bad times uh, because we have this limited view of surrender. And so I, I want to say to you, surrender isn't merely submission. Surrender is affirmation of the perfection of Jesus Christ. Surrender, as the Bible counts surrender, isn't merely denying yourself. It's delighting in the glories of Jesus Christ. You are the Son of God, the, the King of Israel. It's your vision of the perfection and the power and, and the beauty and the love and the holiness and the mercy and, and, and the truth that all is uh, in Jesus, and it's highly experiential. I love Psalm 2, verse 12. It's a command, kiss the Son, S-O-N. It's a command, it's an invitation for you and I to experience the wonder of the lordship and the sovereignty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And it's an Old Testament passage, kiss the Son. It's inviting you to experience. And to the extent you and I experience the wonder of who Jesus is, his perfections and his death, we will live lives of surrender. So the verse in Psalm 2 goes on and says, and take refuge in him. To the extent I kiss the Son, I take refuge in the Son. And I, I, I want you to know this. Now let's finish up. Let's move to this last verse, uh, this response uh, in verse 51, where Jesus says something remarkable. Uh, Verily or truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on, on, on the Son of Man. So Jesus is saying three things. He's got a threefold response. He's telling us, number one, I am gentle. Number two, I know everything about you. And number three, I am God come to rescue you. And that's the story. Now here Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 28. This dream Jacob has about the ladder or the stairway. The NIV translates the word ladder as stairway. And it's this dream of the stairway or ladder that connects heaven to earth, earth to heaven. And the angels of God are going up and up and down this ladder between heaven and earth. When Jacob wakes up from this dream, he says, I have seen the gateway to God. That's the ladder. That's the stairway. Now, Jesus is doing something profound. He's saying that story at the beginning of the Bible is about me. I'm that ladder. I'm the only way to heaven. I'm the gateway between what's on earth and what's in heaven. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, I had the opportunity to, to see this lived out up close and personal in the life of Pastor Lon, and especially this last year in his suffering. 
Uh, Alan had this incredible faith in Jesus Christ, uh, this incredible delight in heaven. And as, as his health began to shift, the second year of his liver cancer, Alan began to talk more and more about heaven. And the more his health declined, the more he talked exclusively about his future in heaven. And now he's experiencing it abundantly. That's what Jesus is promising here. It's what he's inviting. Now, I said it before, but I want you to understand all the Bible points to Jesus, including the Old Testament. And if that's true, then all of our lives should point to uh, Jesus because how we interpret the Bible, how we interpret passages like Genesis 28 uh, helps us understand how we interpret life, how we handle our difficulties, how we handle uh, our different disappointments. And here Jesus says to the skeptic, as impressed as you are that I know everything about you, the greater reality is that I am much more than you could possibly imagine. I am the answer to all your questions. Now think of the incarnation. Jesus appeared in the Old Testament to a variety of people, to Abraham and Sarah, uh, to Jacob, uh, to Joshua, and, and to others. But the most wonderful visit of all was when Jesus was born to a virgin. He became a man to work out our salvation. Now a king or a president may visit his or her people but never would take on their poverty, their sickness, or their tragedy. They couldn't, even if, if they would. But Jesus Christ did precisely that in his incarnation. He descended the ladder and lived a perfect life in the midst of the dust and the dirt, the, the uh, disappointment and the difficulty, the suffering and the rejection and spread out his arms wide on the cross, dying in our place for our sins as our substitute, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God that takes away sin. So the moment you and I believe, the moment you and I stop rolling our eyes at Jesus, we might find forgiveness and hope and meaning. And to the extent we continue to look at Jesus, we experience each and every day of our lives. I find this passage just incredible. Jesus' statement here in verse 59, or 51 rather, amazing. Uh, and let me just say, nobody could make this up about a man from Nazareth who answers life's most ultimate questions. And so where Nathaniel said, could any good thing come from Nazareth? What Jesus is telling us in verse 51 Everything that is good has come from Nazareth. And when God opens your eyes and you see this, and this becomes the dominant reality in your life, Jesus promises that he is going to crowd your life, overwhelm your life with spiritual blessings and riches to carry you through life's darkest hour. Let's pray.
Father, we are amazed at your son. We are amazed at what you have given us in Jesus. And we ask that you would fill us and bless us and draw us to yourself. Oh God, help us to hear. Help us to see. Help us to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.